The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander. Normally, as regular listeners will know, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden. But unfortunately, Kobus is flying back to Johannesburg from Cape Town right now as we're recording, so he's unable to join us. But he'll be back with us on Friday for a show that we're going to do on the Chinese solar power industry So make sure you join us for that. It's going to be a fascinating discussion. Today, we're going to talk about Chinese loans, debt, and whether China is still lending as much money as it once did to developing countries. But before we get into some of the new data that's just come out, and it's absolutely fascinating, let me just quickly bring you up to date on two key debt restructuring processes that we've been closely following for the past few weeks at the China Global South Project. Let's start in Sri Lanka. Earlier this month, the China Exim Bank sent the finance ministry a letter saying that it would defer repayment of $2.83 billion of loans that Colombo owes the bank. Now, that was supposed to be the last big hurdle before Sri Lanka can qualify for a $2.9 billion IMF emergency financing package. But there's a problem. The IMF made it clear that it wants all of the country's major bilateral creditors to be on board. That means India, Japan, and China. Both the Indians and the Japanese have said they're pretty much good to go. In fact, the Indians are leading the way with a 10-year repayment holiday and 15 additional years for Sri Lanka to restructure its debts. The Japanese are also going along with the Paris Club lenders, who for the most part are also on board. Now, two problems popped up with the Chinese, and we've just started to hear about this over the past few days. First, the China Exim Bank, while important, only accounts for about half of the $7.8 billion of bilateral debt that's owed to Chinese creditors. So what about the rest? Well, we just don't know. And the IMF doesn't like that. Secondly, the fact that the China Exim Bank is only offering a two-year repayment deferral is a bit on the short side, and insiders are saying that the IMF also isn't happy with that either. So right now, as it stands, the Sri Lankans are expressing optimism, but We're not entirely sure what's happening next, and that's going to be a story that we'll have to continue to follow. Okay, next, let's go over to Zambia. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in Lusaka last week and called out the Chinese for dragging out the debt restructuring process. Now, don't forget that China is the co-chair of Zambia's creditor committee, so it's actively involved but apparently not moving fast enough for Washington. Well, the Chinese embassy in Lusaka was having none of it and fired off a furious rebuttal that basically said any country that has a $31 trillion debt and is on the verge of defaulting on its own payments is not in a position to lecture anyone on the issue of debt. So other than the two sides spitting at one another, I don't really think much productive came out of that exchange. And Zambia, like Sri Lanka is also still in limbo when it comes to resolving its debt crises. So those are the two major debt restructuring stories that we're following. Now we're going to flip the table and move from debt to loans. So it's kind of the other side of the coin here, an interesting but very important distinction here. 
We've been talking about for a few years now about the steady decline in Chinese lending to developing countries. This is a trend that dates back to around 2016, long before the pandemic, and has continued downwards. In fact, according to the latest data from Boston University's Global Development Policy Center, overseas development lending by China's two main policy banks, now that's the China Exim Bank, which we mentioned earlier, and also the China Development Bank, is now at its lowest level in 15 years. So the Development Center published a new report last week that found that the two banks granted only 28 new loans worth just $10.5 billion in the year from 2020 to 2021. And that's the latest figures that we have available. Let's get the details on these numbers from two researchers at the Global Development Policy Center, two old friends of ours, senior researcher Becky Ray and Tarela Moses, a data analyst at the Center's Global China Initiative. Good morning to you both in Boston and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Eric. It's so great to be back with you. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be with you. And I have to say, I've been listening to you all since 2015. So it's congrats on how far you've brought this podcast. My goodness. So you were listening right about the time when we had the peak lending. So you were going to be expertly qualified to talk to us about some of the findings today. Becky, let's start with you. You were one of the primary authors of this new report. Let's get an overview and kind of just set the table of what you found and what is the current state of Chinese lending based on what the data is telling you. Absolutely. So we track, as you said, China's overseas development finance, sovereign finance from their development finance institutions, which work under the same principles as the World Bank and other development finance institutions. And we track it from 2008, which is the last global business cycle peak. Over that whole time period, it's about $500 billion, or about 83% of what the World Bank lent in that same time period. So here we have a national, the one nation's development finance that's in the same echelon as the World Bank, which is tremendous, even if it's not quite at the same level. But as you said, in the last few years, it has dramatically slowed. And in the last two years that we have data for, 2020, 2021, it slowed down to just a total of $10.5 billion in that time period. So this really is potentially a new era. Okay, a new era. Tarela, let's get some of the details of the data that you and Becky and others found. What is it telling you? you tell us where the loans are going, what is the size of the loans? Give us the profile of what Chinese lending to developing countries looks like today. So what we're seeing is, as Becky mentioned, this decline since 2016, there was a peak. And in the most recent two years, we mentioned this $10.5 billion across 2020 and 2021. Now, over the course of 2008 to 2021, the Asian region has received 35% of this finance, followed by Latin America with 26%, and then Africa with 23%, and then it goes down to Europe and Oceania as well. So this regional breakdown still shows us that a lot of the finance has been directed to Asia um, specifically. And then in the last two years as well, when we look at the different sectors that received financing, we know that the transport sector has been the sector that has received the most financing, while the oil sector, specifically for public-private partnership type entities that join together with the government to produce oil, they have received less finance over the years. So these large institutions that historically have borrowed a lot from Chinese development finance institutions, 
most recently have borrowed less. And lastly, when it comes to the Africa region specifically, we see that in the past two years of 2020 and 2021, the telecom sector has been the most prominent sector. And this has been a sector that historically received less finance compared to transport, power, extraction sectors. And so we expect that this could be an emerging sector within Africa, specifically that receives finance from DC institutions. Okay, so Becky, Tarela, you know, really walked us through the regions and the sectors. You guys identified the top 10 borrowers, and let me just kind of run through them, and I'd like you to help us understand why these countries are coming out on top. So Angola, Argentina, Bangladesh, Brazil, Ecuador, Iran, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Russia, and Venezuela. So what do these countries have that other countries don't have that makes them so preferable for Chinese policy banks? In a word, oil. In a few words, state-owned oil companies. So of those 10 countries, five of them have major state-owned oil companies. You know, Angola has Sonangol, Venezuela has Pedevisa, Russia has Rosneft, Ecuador has Petroecuador, and Brazil has Petrobras. And those five firms, just those five firms alone, if they were a country, would be the top national borrower from CDB and Chexum over this time period. That said, China hasn't extended new loans to them since 2017. So that really dominated the story in the first few years of the data set, especially right before the BRI was announced. And in those first few BRI years, that dominated the story. But China's really switched away from that mode. And as Tarela says, has focused more on smaller scale and specifically transport and power projects instead. So this is a really big shift from 10 years ago. When the Belt and Road started and the range of borrowers, the range of projects, the diversity was so much larger. Today, it really feels it's just about extraction. Is there a shift in the strategy or is it the economics driving this? But something has changed, Becky. Just walk us through again. I'm just trying to get to the why right now. I see three factors that are behind this switch, not only in size, but in sector and, and who's borrowing. The first one is simply the supply of dollars. The dollars have to come from somewhere. And between China's peak in 2015 and just a few years later in 2018, China's current account surplus dropped by 90%. Of course, these were the years of the Trump-Chi trade dispute. Uh, so China's supply of dollars was drying up and it just started redirecting those dollars towards priority projects rather than lending them out kind of in general in large sums for general purpose lending to these state-owned oil companies to use as they will. So they started prioritizing more directly in a more targeted way. That's what I see as factor number one or potential factor number one. Potential factor two is totally unsurprising. Development finance lays the groundwork for direct investment, sometimes quite literally <laughs> laying the roads and transportation infrastructure that private investment or direct investment needs to function. And so when we see projects like, for example, the East African crude oil pipeline, China's involved in that through direct investment. They don't need to do sovereign lending for that project, even though pipelines are were, in the early years of China's development finance, a major sector of lending. Now, CNUC, the China National Overseas Oil Company, can simply participate as a minority partner in a joint venture with 
other oil companies. So part of it is that they don't need development finance necessarily in the same way as they did before to lay that groundwork. And then the third factor that I'll mention is simply that it's not as good of a time to borrow anymore, right? In those years when China had these huge reserves, was sitting on a mountain of U.S. Treasury bonds earning essentially zero interest, I mean, historically low interest rate, why not lend those out? Great time to borrow. Interest rates were very low. Well, now the opposite is true. The U.S. dollar is rising. Interest rates are rising. It's an expensive time to borrow. So equity becomes a more attractive option. And that's the kind of one of the pivots we've seen. I specifically want to highlight work that Tyrella has done on the rise in China's overseas equity investment funds that are playing a larger and larger role here. That's an excellent transition. And in fact, I wrote about that a couple months ago. And Tyrella, you were fantastic in correcting me on a mistake that I made about that, saying that this is something new, these equity investment funds. And in fact, the timing of this discussion is quite good because we look at the launch of the new port of Leki, which is the deep sea port in Nigeria, where China Harbor Engineering Corporation took a $221 million equity stake. Again, that is equity, not sovereign lending. We've talked about, and then you've also highlighted these equity investments that they're making with partners in Singapore and elsewhere. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, Tarella, about some of the research you've done in that space? Sure. So me and a couple other co-authors came together and wanted to investigate funds such as, um, you may have heard of the Silk Road Fund or the China Africa Development Fund that are established by multiple shareholders at a time from China. And what we found is what we term as overseas development investment funds. Now, these are pools of established capital that are often provided by public and private institutions to primarily provide equity for projects that have a developmental impact or outcome all around the world. From 2007 to 2019, we found that these ODIFs, as we call them, represent $155 billion of capitalization. This doesn't mean that they have provided this much equity, but there's a potential to go up to $155 billion. And compared to development finance, which Becky found in, in her report of $498 billion, it's definitely not as large, but it is a sizable kind of pool of finance that can be used for future development projects. So we expect that, you know, whether or not development finance from the Export-Import Bank of China and China Development Bank um, rebounds or not, we'll start to see more of these ODIFs playing a huge role in these future development projects through public-private partnerships. Okay, let me just understand these ODIFs a little bit, just so that I think everybody's clear. Where's the money coming from? Is this also coming from the policy banks? Is this public money or is it corporate money? What's the source of this $155 billion? Sure. So there are separate funds, different funds, and what we find is that there are some funds that we call sovereign development funds where there would be a policy bank or a state-owned Chinese institution that is involved in the fund. And in these sovereign development funds, a lot of the times it's more than one state-owned institution. So there are some that have China Development Bank, China Exim Bank, and some other Chinese banks that are involved in the fund. And then we also have private equity funds that specifically are uh, established by corporate institutions or companies themselves that will pay in a little bit of equity into the fund. And then that fund is used to then invest in other projects. And then lastly, we also have joint investment funds, 
where, let's say, a policy bank or a Chinese company will partner with a regional institution to establish an equity fund, and then they together will decide on development projects they want to invest in. Now, what I found really interesting was that I think it was China Exim Bank was partnering with a fund in Singapore. And what was interesting about that is because Singapore has some of the most stringent uh, disclosure guidelines and transparency requirements. And of course, one of the major critiques that critics of Chinese overseas lending, namely from U.S., European, and say Japanese stakeholders have, is that Chinese traditional overseas lending lacks clarity and transparency, and the Chinese don't disclose much. But by virtue of partnering with a Singaporean entity, are they subject to Singaporean disclosure laws? And does that bring the Chinese lending process more into the mainstream of global capitalism, global finance? Yeah, I think that's a great question that we also thought about. And I think what these funds are showing us is that, you know, when Chinese institutions are joining together with institutions all around the world, they then have to either adhere to the regional guidelines or at least negotiate with their regional partners as to, and agree upon the guidelines. However, the benefit for the Chinese institution is one to gain more regional expertise to learn from their partner from the region as well and to kind of develop on their end what how their policies could potentially change and improve over time. So I think the fact that they're kind of joining together and potentially adhering to these new policies is a good thing in the long run and creates a learning opportunity for Chinese institutions. So, Becky, what caught my attention about the ODIFs and, again, some of these new vehicles that the Chinese are using is it comes at the same time as the U.S. and the Europeans are launching new initiatives of their own. So in Europe, it's the Global Gateway. And in the United States, it was the Build Back Better World, which is now evolving into any number of different initiatives that the, China, that the U.S. and the Biden administration are launching for different regions around the world. Here in Asia, there's things like IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. There's a number of infrastructure initiatives that they're building. But do you see what the Chinese are doing in any way as comparable to what the Americans and Europeans are doing with some of these new initiatives, things like ODIFs? Well, the proof will be in the pudding, right? As Janet Yellen has been in Africa, I'm sure that you two follow all of the China-Africa scholars that I follow on social media and probably more. And so you've probably seen all of the discussion about when China visits, we get a hospital. And when the U.S. visits, we get a lecture. <laughs> Which is a BS narrative, by the way. I mean, it's just well, a completely BS narrative. Um, what we didn't see with Yellen's visit to Africa, so we didn't see discussion of Ghana's debt situation, right? Which is Ghana has just joined the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative of the G20. Uh, they primarily owe bondholders. Where do those bondholders live? Where do they reside? Which policymakers have the power of carrots and sticks to bring them to the table? Primarily Paris Club countries. So that's going to take actual action on the part of U.S. and other G20, other Paris Club, excuse me, governments to bring them to the table. And we haven't really seen that level of coordination. And that doesn't speak well for the level of coordination that would be needed in order for PGII and Global Gateway to really rise to the level of being able to provide policy coordination, coordinated investment and finance, uh, what's needed for the vision of infrastructure buildup and investment buildup that we see in the press releases about the vision of these projects. Very promising in their vision. But if they're having this much trouble coordinating 
to bring bondholders to the table to negotiate with Ghana, then I don't know how they're going to coordinate with investors to build up new infrastructure projects to help with climate change mitigation, adaptation, public health, etc. Oh, I wish Cobus was here. He wrote an entire column last week, you know, just blistering critique of the Americans, because I think you're being a little bit kind, uh, Becky, to the Americans on this front here. So among the Paris Club lenders, it's really the UK and the US, because that's the jurisdiction for the bulk of the bonds that come out of London and New York. Secondly, you said we haven't seen the kind, as far as I know, we haven't seen any movement from either the UK or the US governments to relax the fiduciary laws that would give the bondholders some flexibility to negotiate uh, debt resettlements. And the theory that I have is that people like Joe Biden do not want to force concessions out of Wall Street in the run-up to an election year, because at the end of the day, he needs the financial services industry on his side and doesn't want to make them suffer for people in Africa and Bolivia and Pakistan when he's got to make sure that people in Idaho are taken care of. That's my <laughs> operating theory. I, you know, I'd love to hear what you think on that. That's certainly uh, one aspect of political reality. You know, there was a great study out of the Kiel Institute in Germany about what actually happens with effective sovereignty or the effective seniority, excuse me, of creditors in actual debt restructurings that have happened historically and effectively... Paris club debt restructurings in the past have given more priority to bondholders than to their own standings. In other words, bondholder debt is either senior to or at least not less senior to Paris club bilateral debt in actual restructurings. And so it makes sense then. It's just their own domestic economic policy. It makes sense that they would favor their own financial sector over their own public sector books. That's a policy choice. It may not be the policy choice I would make, but it's a policy choice. It's a bit silly to then expect the same practice from countries where those bondholders don't live, right? If those bondholders are primarily based in the UK and in the US, why would you expect any other country to play ball with that approach that favors bondholders? And so there hasn't been an interest in the past in disciplining either through carrots or sticks these bondholders to bring them to the table. And until that happens, I'm going to be personally a little suspicious of the coordination capacity that the PGII and the GG aspire to, which would be necessary to really fill the gaps that they want to be relevant to. And I, you know, hats off to that vision, the vision of coordinating policy, coordinating investment, and, and coordinating finance. That's great. But if you can't coordinate, if you can't bring your bondholders to the table, how are you going to bring investors to the table for new investment? But again, this is an area that Tarilla has written about comparing the PGII and the GG and the BRI. So I want to give her space to bring her actual uh, informed commentary to the table as well. Absolutely. Before we go on, there's a couple acronyms that Becky's throwing out there. Uh, PGII is the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. That is the latest American acronym for an initiative designed to take on China. So we had, again, B3W. We've got the Clean Network. We've got, there's a whole list of them. I think there's a drinking game that we can do for every time you say one, you got to take a drink. Also, of course, we've got Gigi, which is the Global Gateway. And then, of course, Belt and Road Initiative. Tarella, let's hand it over to you to, to pick up the conversation and, and, and dive into some of the research that you found on this. 
Sure. Thanks, Eric. And so what we found is that generally when we take or zoom out and look and compare the BRI and the PGII, we notice that in general, they are aiming to do the same thing, meaning that both of these initiatives are using their development finance institutions and other development related institutions to provide financing to low to medium income countries for the purpose of development. Now, the BRI certainly came first, being that it was announced in 2013. The PGII has a little bit of a history in that it was called the Build Back Better World Initiative before and then was later kind of reannounced in 2022 and rebranded as the PGII to then include um, the Global Gateway, which is the uh, European Union version of the same type of initiative. And when we compare what sectors they're trying to target, we've seen that over the years, the BRI has provided financing for more hard infrastructure projects. So think your roads, railways, whereas it seems that the PGII is looking more at for soft, to target soft infrastructure and soft sectors such as healthcare and connectivity through telecom type initiatives. And so while there's similarity in terms of their de definitions, it their, at least their reach and potentially their outcome will be different. The PGII is smaller in scale, meaning that the group of seven countries have committed $600 billion towards the PGII, and then the BRI is definitely larger in scale. There's no official commitment, but the two development finance institutions alone have already committed $498 billion from 2008 to 2021, as we've talked about earlier in this podcast. So given that there's complementarity between these two initiatives, we feel that there should be at least areas of some type of cooperation or um, the least some type of healthy competition where as these two initiatives are competing with each other, um, the outcome is that developing countries have the best kind of choice and deal for their development projects. Can you explain something to me that I have not been able to figure out about either Global Gateway or PGII, which is how do the Europeans and the Americans funnel $900 billion of collective money into the global South without adding to the debt burdens of these countries. And I just haven't understand that because I don't think the politics in either the United States or Europe would tolerate giving away that much money as grants. And again, also African governments and developing countries have also said they do want to break away from the charity, the grant, and the, the kind of historical way that money has flowed from the global north to the global south. So if it's not charity and it's not loans, what is it? Tarela, do you have any insight on how this works, how either one of these programs in the U.S. and in Europe are going to work? Sure. So when you read some of the fine print of some of these announcements, you realize that they're going to be using what they call their export credit agencies and their development finance institutions. Now, export credit agencies, they operate in a way that they support the exports of goods and services of the domestic country's institution when those companies are trying to support or help provide a good or service to projects across the world. So what I'm saying is that 
these institutions that will be used within PGI and Global Gateway have to respond to the desire for their own companies to actually go out and contribute to these projects and win contracts for the finance to actually be funneled into these countries that are target countries. So when- uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm still not clear on three. When they say $600 billion, are they loaning money? Are they giving export credits? I don't quite understand how they come to those numbers and what they're going to do with the money. Yeah, so it's a mixture of loans in the forms of export credits. It's also guarantees or insurance, for example, meaning that a commercial bank from one of the G7 countries would provide finance and the state uh, or government institution would provide insurance to that commercial bank. And it's also in the form of grants as well for things like technical assistance for projects. So that's kind of the goal. And the idea also is that as these government institutions put in, you know, small amounts of finance to show that ultimately the governments will take the risk, so to speak, then more private sector investment from commercial banks and private corporate institutions will then come in and also want to be a part of um, financing these projects. Okay, that's somewhat ambitious, but you have given by far the best explanation of this. The Americans and the Europeans have struggled a little bit to articulate how this is all going to work. Uh, Becky, I do want to come back to the Chinese and tier data. By the way, I just want to clarify why I said the narrative is BS that when the Americans come, they get a lecture, and when the Chinese come, they get a hospital. People overlooked at the fact that, yes, the Americans are nowhere near as good at building infrastructure, but when it comes to humanitarian assistance in Africa in particular, $11 billion a year is significant. And that's why I think it, those simplistic narratives are complicated by the fact that, you know, that's not what the Chinese do. And in this particular case, I'm not sure it's productive to get into a competition between, well, who's giving this and who's giving that. Um, as Tarella said, we, re, you know, it should be down to what are the needs of developing countries. I'm a little concerned by the fact that all this money is going for export credits and things like that, because that's really about what the needs are of American business, not necessarily helping businesses in global South countries. Let's go back to your data, Becky. You suggested that the profile of Chinese lending now around the world is something that you call a small is beautiful strategy. Expand on that for us. Well, to clarify, it's not my phrase. I'm borrowing it from Chinese and Western analysts of China's lending behavior. So I didn't come up with the phrase, but rather I'm showing how it's typified the lending patterns in the last few years. So as I said before, once we see this shift, well, after about the first five years of the BRI, we see a shift towards smaller, more targeted projects and, you know, we track the environmental and social risks of these projects in a few simple ways. We see those risks declining also, giving some evidence that there may be increasing thoughtfulness up front about selecting projects that are lower risk financially, lower risk politically, as well as lower risk to the business itself from the environmental and social aspects. Well, how much of it has to do with the fact that in the early days of the BRI, and that's from the up until about 2015, 2016, and there's some interesting milestones that happened about that time, which is the, the Hambandota port and also the Standard Gauge Railway, two massive projects in many ways that represent the worst in Chinese lending. That was a time, and I remember I was living in China at that time, and it was a little bit like Oprah Winfrey 
and you know, you get a car and you get a car and you get a loan and whatever you wanted, if you just put BRI on the project, you got financing for it. And there was very little oversight, very little definition as to what constituted a worthwhile project for them. And they were just throwing money around because it was easy and cheap. As I said, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of the global war on terror after 9-11. And it was just like money was flowing out of Washington for anything that you said was Al-Qaeda. And countries go through these periods. And then just as with the global war on terror, we pulled back and we started to put some discipline and there was audits. And it was like, wait, do we really need to spend this money here and there? And also the Chinese did the same, where they kind of said, you know what, we demanding more feasibility studies. Does this make sense? Is there a carrying capacity uh, in the borrowing country? Can they actually sustain it and whatnot? So how much of the change in 2016, this pyramid chart that you guys constantly publish, where it peaked in 2016 and then starts plummeting, is because of Chinese learning about what makes sense. And in fact, China, it turns out, may not be this radical new lender, you know, that's competing with the World Bank and the IMF. And now it seems like China's settling in to be a normal major power lender like pretty much everybody else. Give me your reaction to kind of my line of thinking on that. Sure. When we look at the projects that really typify the last few years of lending, we still see major construction projects that are really significant for the countries involved, right? They've China's lending for Egypt's new capital, not only building up the capital itself, but also the rail line to get there, a series of highways in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, power plants in Russia, Uzbekistan. So this is really kind of returning to their core strengths, if you will. These are sectors in which China has always been the most competitive globally on cost and speed and building this physical infrastructure. We can think about this additional lending that kind of came and went as a period of easy money and absolute push to get to go out and lay that groundwork by greasing the wheels, so to speak, um, through development finance. Um, and perhaps now a return to what China has always done during this period just about better than anyone else and certainly faster than anyone else when it comes to being able to reliably get you the power, the road, the railway that your president is demanding by the time the president leaves office. That's right. And that's one of the reasons, ironically, and our mutual friend Jude Moore over at the Center for Global Development points out that oftentimes democracies tend to prefer working with the Chinese than autocracies, in part because the Chinese move fast and deliver prior to a term of office expiring. And then you run again on the new infrastructure and come out from that. So there's an interesting irony there. But the Wall Street Journal, just this week or so, published a fascinating report documenting there's a lot of quality problems with some of the infrastructure that's being built. Do you make any connections in your research between the loans and the quality of the infrastructure and that speed issue that you just talked about? Well, we don't in our database, but we hope it's a tool for other people to do. And for example, we've used it in regional case study analysis to look at the quality and also environmental and social risks with counterfactuals. It's so important to compare apples to apples here to say, is China better or worse quality than other similar sized loans for similar sized projects? And so a few years ago, some regional experts in the Andes and the Amazon and we got together to write a book project comparing really in-depth the due diligence, the quality, the process, the speed of infrastructure development from a host of development lenders in specifically in the Andes Amazon region. And what we found is that, first of all, nobody's got this right. Second of all, national development banks, previously before China showed up to South America to lend for infrastructure, Brazil's national development bank used to do that for its neighbors. 
And it would lend in the same way for them to use Brazil's construction companies. And of course, that's fallen into the enormous corruption scandal of the the car wash scandal. That's every form, just about every former president of the country of Peru that's alive. And one who killed himself as authorities were closing in on him has been taken down by this corruption investigation. So national development finance is prone to these problems. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why we suggest that co-financing with MDBs is a great way to kind of raise those standards and prevent backroom dealings, whether it's from Brazil's National Development Bank or whether it's from Chinese development finance or any other bilateral lender where there's not the same kind of global open bidding process and global level transparency standards. Uh, But we, you know, also found delays, crumblings, failed projects with major multilateral lenders in that region because so much of it depends on building up capacity in the host countries to oversee those projects well, which is one reason why the World Bank doesn't finance large infrastructure projects anymore. It's just really hard to do them well in countries with uh, still limited institutional capacity. Well, that's a little bit of a tragedy for many countries, in part because if the World Bank doesn't do it and China seems to be getting out of the business of funding large-scale infrastructure, then who's going to do it? Because we look at the African infrastructure deficit is running at about $120, $130 billion a year, more than a trillion dollars over 10 years. And and again, the key question is where it's going to come from. And it can't come from Wall Street simply because what we know is the interest rates and the terms are too, too short. In fact, one of the kind of realizations from a source of ours inside China Exim Bank was saying that the very premise of funding a 50 to 100 year project like a railroad with a 20 year loan simply doesn't make sense anymore to do that. So how are countries, and Torella, maybe I can put this to you, how are countries going to close this infrastructure gap in your view if it's not coming from the Chinese? And you guys, by the way, aren't forecasting some kind of massive rebound in Chinese lending. Like we're in a, this is not going to be like a V-shaped recovery where five years from now, we're back up to $500 billion competing with the World Bank. So if that's the case, and we've seen that the Americans and the Europeans are really about financing their companies through export credits, how do countries in the Americas and in Africa in particular finance their large-scale infrastructure needs? Well, Eric, that is the million-dollar question. and Or trillion-dollar question. <laughs> yes, yes, really, trillion-dollar question. And I think there are just a, a few different factors that we could look at. So I know earlier we talked about equity funds and the fact that a lot of times equity could be paired with the public sector through what we call public-private partnerships so that multiple stakeholders are paying in finance into a specific project. I'm sorry, if I can stop you right here, the PPP model, the public-private partnership model, in many ways is even more demanding than those 20-year loans I was talking about. So we have the Nairobi Expressway and we have the Sihanoukville Expressway out here in Southeast Asia, both PPP projects. The problem is, is that China Road and Bridge Corporation, who's built both of these tollways, has to charge so much money in order to get a return on its investments that only the wealthy can take these roads. And at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily benefit the whole of society because, you know, the average guy can't afford six, ten, fifteen dollars in here in, in Cambodia. It's nineteen dollars for some of the tolls to do that. There's a much less patience for the economic turmoils that come with these types of infrastructure projects than you would see from the multilateral development banks or the overseas development banks. 
Sure. And that's why this is just one option, I think, that countries have at their disposal, especially those who don't want to be taking on debt, but want to kind of shift where the finance is coming from and make sure it's coming more so from the private sector side of things. So that's one option. I think another option is for multilateral development banks and regional banks to actually expand the amount of capital that they can provide. We have a report that we released a couple years ago that showed that MDBs are actually able, like, are not providing as much finance as they could provide and are too risk averse to the point where if things were adjusted in terms of perceptions of risk and different approaches and mindsets were changed in terms of approach to finance, there could be a greater increase of capital that they have to then distribute to different countries that they work with. And then I think the third bucket is regional institutions. So for example, if the China Development Bank were to provide finance in a large amount to the African Development Bank and allow kind of the African Development Bank to be the lead in terms of determining where the finance goes to and using their regional expertise to spread that capital throughout the continent, I think that's another maybe more enhanced approach But either way, all these three options, I think, will take some time to evolve and develop. But it just shows the incredible urgency that's needed to think of new ways to come about with kind of addressing this infrastructure gap that we have. Uh, Yeah, just to be fair, that the People's Bank of China, I think it is, does have a $2 billion growing together fund with the African Development Bank. So there is some precedent for that. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that should be something that is built upon even more. And so, Becky. Sorry, I did want to add one thing from a China-Latin America perspective, which is that we can also stop shooting ourselves in the foot. So just like, as you just said, PBOC has When you say we, who are you referring to? I'm actually referring to wealthy countries who are members of MDBs with China. Okay. So, for example... Just as you mentioned, PBOC has a fund with the African Development Bank. Export-Import Bank of China used to have an infrastructure fund through the Inter-American Development Bank. But then the U.S., through Donald Trump, pushed through a director of the IDB that was a U.S.-based director for the first time in its history. It's always been a Latin American-led institution. And this leader of the IDB came with an agenda, among other things, of sidelining China in that MDB. And so that infrastructure fund hasn't been replenished. As far as I know, they've dropped out of all of their partnership fund reports. It's not listed anymore. That not only is shooting in the foot the national interest of the U.S., because less infrastructure funding at the IDB means less projects that all IDB members can bid on, U.S. companies included, but it also really limits this beautiful potential of crowding in Chinese money through an institution that has the transparency standards, has the environmental and social standards, and will get paid back because MDBs always get paid back first. So pushing China out of multilateral fora is so counterproductive, not only for developing countries that need those projects, but also even for the national interests of the rich countries that might think they're pushing their own national interests by pushing out China. They're actually doing the opposite, I think. Yeah, I think that's going to be a tough sell in Washington today, given where we are today. I think the Europeans are actually more open to it. Certainly France, for example, which does have a number of joint development projects with the Chinese underway. By the way, the port of Lecky being one of them uh, is, is maybe more amenable to something like that. So we've covered a lot of ground in this discussion. And 
and I, I hope it's not too confusing for, for people to follow along, but let's kind of look to the future. And again, I want to try and get a, a pulse check of where we are so people kind of understand what to expect. So much of the narratives about the Chinese and lending have been baked in over the past 10 years. Predatory lending, debt trap diplomacy. Uh, they're going to, you know, the port of Hambandota has taken on you know, a life of its own. You know, we all spend our time with reporters debunking so many of these myths and God bless the air that Deborah Baudigan breathes for her, the work that she's been able to do to try and do this. So we're in a new era and your report even had that in the title. What is this new era? This is going to be our closing remarks just to kind of bring it all together. Tarella, let's go to you first and then Becky. Sure. So this new era, or what we think may be a new era, is that the small is beautiful approach is here to stay, meaning that Chinese development finance institutions will provide finance and target small projects that have a smaller value, as well as projects that have higher quality and over the long term, higher impact as well. So with this like whether or not, again, development finance from these two institutions rebound, we also see that if this approach continues, we'll also see a greater diversification of finance, meaning that there will be more finance from overseas development investment funds, increasing finance towards regional institutions, as well as other forms of finance that China could use to support development projects. And are you generally optimistic or pessimistic about the near-term future? I am optimistic. <laughs> you have to be optimistic. Okay. I love it. I love it. Okay, so Becky, we're going to give you the last word. Same question. What do we need to know going forward? I'm keeping my eyes on the new standards that are just pouring out of Beijing for their overseas. In the last two years, we have seen new, really high-level government guidance from Beijing on green finance, green construction, and green investment. And that tells me that Mofcom is now aware of the problems that have come down the line from a more loose form of finance. And they are trying to rein in the performance of their investors overseas. And so I'm optimistic about where that effort goes. And I hope that that means that China is, in fact, prioritizing raising the standards and the performance level of their investors overseas and their finance projects. We're beginning to see more scrutiny already. For example, the negotiations of the mainline rail in Pakistan. If you've been following that news, and I know you have been, for the last six months, it's been Pakistan saying that it's been finalized and China saying, we're not really sure it's actually finalized. And Pakistan saying, no, no, it's really finalized. And China saying, well, actually, have you thought about this? So we see more due diligence being done at the beginning of these large projects. And that's encouraging to me, because as you said, if a project's supposed to last a century or multiple centuries even, you might want to put some extra due diligence into the front of it. Yeah. So I'm encouraged by those factors, and I do hope that they yield fruit as we move forward. And that's also what's happened in Uganda and Nigeria, where the Chinese financiers have walked away from standard gauge railways there as well, probably for very similar concerns. Also, just on the acronym hunt there, MOFCOM is the Ministry of Commerce <laughs> in China. So, you know, with your development types, you know, it's like talking to the military. Everybody's got an acronym for everything. So, Thank you so much for calling me on it. I will take a drink of my coffee every time I use one of those. <laughs> That's right. We should Again, we do a drinking game on the show every time there's a development acronym. We'll, we'll take a slug. So thank you both for taking the time to join us to walk through the report. The report is Small is Beautiful 
Global, A New Era in China's Overseas Development Finance. It's a policy brief. There's a web page. We have some exclusive writing on our website. And by the way, all of BU's work on our site is open. It's not behind the paywall. So anybody can read it. And we every Tuesday feature an excellent article from the Global Development Policy Center team, including Becky and Tarella. So we want to thank both of you for joining us. Uh, we're going to put the link to the report in the show notes. Becky, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Best way to connect with me is on Twitter at BUBeckyWright. Uh, quite straightforward, but also follow the GDP Center, really, because this intersection of how development finance for the Global South and how China's role in it intersect is where we live as a center. So if this interests you on this varied and multifaceted conversation we've had, follow us at the GDP Center. Okay. And Tarella, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Sure. So just want to echo what Becky said. Please follow us um, at the GDP Center. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tarella Moses as well as connect with me on LinkedIn, same name. Fantastic. We'll put, again, links to all the Twitter handles, the reports, and the center in the show notes of the report. Becky, Terella, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Again, Cobus is going to be back with us uh, beginning on Friday, and we'll be back to our regular session of every Tuesday. We try every Tuesday to do the Global South podcast, and every Friday, the China in Africa podcast. So until next time, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.